Good morning, Lakes Free Church. I want to welcome you to worship today. It's so great to see you. If we haven't met, my name is Jason Carlson. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, we're so glad that you've joined us for worship today. I want to say hello to those of you joining us online as well. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, today is going to be a great day as we come together to worship the Lord. Uh, it's hard to believe that we're already at the end of summer, and this is uh, Labor Day weekend. But uh, with that, while we're saying goodbye to summer here shortly, we are really excited for this fall season that's going to be starting up here at church. Uh, lots of great things happening here in the coming weeks are resuming our adult Bible fellowship groups, our student ministry, children's ministry, uh, lots of great ways to get involved and get connected. Uh, so we're super excited about that. We hope that you'll take advantage of those opportunities, uh, joining us for worship and then participating in the wider life of the Lakes Free Church uh, family. I want to remind you, next week we are moving our worship service times to 9 o'clock and 1040, all right? So if you've been getting used to this 850 time slot, you're still welcome to come. You're just going to be here a little bit early, uh, grab a cup of coffee and hang tight. But, but we're going to be officially starting at 9 o'clock next week. That's our new uh, start time for the first hour. And then uh, 1040 will be the new start time for our second service. So again, keep, your, keep that in mind for uh, next week as we come back to our fall kickoff back to life here at Lakes Free. All right, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to have some great worship here in a moment. And uh, I stole your thunder, Chaz, I know. And, uh, but we're going to have a word of prayer. And I just like all of us standing together as we uh, unite our hearts together before the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the joy and privilege of being gathered together as your people. We just want to commit this day to you, Lord. We thank you for this holiday weekend and just the opportunity that it provides for us to, to have some rest and enjoyment with family and friends. But, but Lord, here on Sunday morning, we've come into your presence to give you thanks for being an awesome God, to give you praise for being a holy God, to, to sing your praises because you are a God of amazing grace. And so, Lord, we just pray that you'll be honored and blessed and glorified now as we come to, uh, to praise you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this day. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Our living hope, Jesus Christ. What a great joy it is to come and praise his name together on Sunday mornings. Today, as we come to the Lord's table to celebrate communion, uh, I was reflecting on the reality that we are now in week 42 of our uh, series in the Gospel of John. Today is the last message in our series. It's been a, a great year studying the Gospel of John together, and as I was thinking about what we would share for our time of meditation uh, on, uh, on the Lord's Supper this morning, I thought there'd probably be no better place to go than to that ultimate description of what John has described for us in, in like we talked about last week, this grand cosmic salvation story that really is the Gospel of John. Uh, there's no better place to go in this entire gospel than, than that heart, that core message that speaks to the reality of what Jesus has done for us. That passage that we all know so well, John 3, 16 through 18. I want to read these words for us this morning as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And I'd like you to reflect on these and meditate upon what John has shared with us here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. I love that line John shares there in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Friends, apart from Jesus Christ, we all stand condemned. Because of our sins which separate us from a holy, righteous, perfect God. None of us on our own can enter into God's righteous presence. 
We, we needed a mediator. We needed somebody to make a way for us. And that's what John has recorded for us in his gospel, the story of how God has made a way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? So that you and I could be reconciled into a right relationship with him. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died in our place. He shed his blood to cover our sins. And when we put our faith and trust in him, God applies the shed blood of Jesus Christ to us. And so God in his righteousness and his holiness, he no longer looks upon us and our sins, but he sees the shed blood of the perfect spotless lamb of God. That shed blood that covers us and washes us white as snow so that we can understand the reality of that promise. Those who believed in him are not condemned. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That's amazing grace, friends. What a great gift is ours in Jesus. And that's what we remember and celebrate when we come to the Lord's table on the first Sunday of every month here at Lakes Free. We come to remember, to celebrate, to give thanks for what God has done for us, making a way for us to be forgiven of our sins through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. In a moment, you're going to take that cup that you were given as you walked in, and you're going to prepare the, the first element, the wafer, and the wafer reminds us of the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who became a man, he took on flesh, he humbled himself, he left his glory in heaven so that we could know him, so that we could know God personally through him. We're going to tear open the second piece of that cup, the, the juice, and we're going to stare into that crimson juice as we prepare to drink, and we're reminded as we look at that crimson juice of the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, friends, I want you to spend a moment reflecting on these great truths this morning, meditating on these great truths this morning. I'm going to invite one of our elders, Jay Corn, to come up and pray for the elements for us. Uh, after Jake prays, our worship team is going to lead us in a time of reflection, and then I'm going to come up and lead us in taking the, the bread and the juice together. Let me just say this. If you're visiting here this morning and you too are a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us in taking communion. This meal is for all who have put their trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not sure about your, your faith or you're still kind of searching or seeking or wondering about Jesus, let me just say, we're so glad you're here. There, there's no better place for you to be. But, but we would ask you to refrain from joining us in this communion meal because this is a special meal, a special celebration for those of us who have trusted in Jesus. No one around you will think any less of you, uh, but again, we would ask you to refrain unless you have put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. So, Jake, I'm going to invite you to pray for the elements this morning. Thank you. Let's pray. God, we come before you humbled today, humbled that uh, you cared about us enough to send Jesus, send him in our place to pay the penalty that we deserved. Lord, we thank you for the body that was broken in our place, for the blood that was shed where ours should have been shed. God, we, we never could have paid that ourselves. We thank you and, and for the victory that we have because of it. And, and on Sunday here, we also think of the victory uh, that you saw over the grave three days later. Jesus, we celebrate that, and we thank you that you've welcomed us into your family and that your blood has made a way for us. Amen. Mm -hmm.
If you'd prepare your wafer, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And now if you'd prepare your cup, please. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Amen. Well, I'm going to pray here in a moment for Pastor Stephen as he comes and brings our final message in the Gospel of John. Uh, great passage today as we look at uh, Jesus' final encounter with his disciple Peter. Before we uh, pray for our message and our time in the Word this morning, I just want to share some exciting news with you. You might have seen this uh, curious-looking family sitting here towards the front this morning. Uh, we are so excited this week. Uh, we welcome Pastor Barry Holst, our new executive pastor, uh, to our Lakes Free team. He started on uh, September 1st, this Wednesday, and uh, Barry and his family are here with us this morning. So uh, would you just please join me in giving them a warm welcome Welcome, and we're so glad you're here. Uh, in two weeks, on September 19th, we're going to have a formal commissioning for Barry that Sunday morning where uh, myself and our elders will pray over Barry and just officially commission him to his service here at Lakes Free. But in the meantime, uh, if you have a chance, please uh, greet Barry and his family and uh, give them a warm welcome as they join us here at Lakes Free Church. Let's pray and ask God's blessing over our message this morning and over Pastor Stephen as he comes to share the word with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the, the great privilege of coming into your presence to worship you. 
We thank you for the opportunity to gather around the Lord's table this morning and to be reminded of your amazing grace and the sacrifice of your Son, which forgives us of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, your goodness to us, and, and all that we've seen in this grand cosmic salvation story that the Apostle John has provided for us in his gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the past 42 weeks as we've been able to, to dive deep into your word and get to know you more through the eyes and story and recollection of your Apostle John who provided this eyewitness testimony for us so that we could know you, so that we could know why you came into this world, so that we could know the hope of new life found in you, Jesus. And so we just are so thankful that we've had this opportunity to, to get to know you more and study your word together. Today, as we come to this final message now, I just pray that you would bless Pastor Stephen as he, as he shares. Lord, give him wisdom as he speaks. Help, uh, help to illuminate the truth of your word for us through the, the message that you have inspired him to share today. And we just thank you, Lord, that we now have the privilege again of opening the Gospel of John together one last time to, uh, to look deeply into who you are. God, reveal yourself to us in a special way this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Good morning. I was uh, early on in my past trip, um, previous church, and uh, I, got to, I got to be involved in doing premarital counseling, which was a neat thing. Um, I, I honestly, I hadn't been married very long when I actually started doing premarital counseling, so it felt a little bit like the blind leading the blind. But, uh, but, but it was still a very, very neat opportunity. I was, excited for the, I was excited for it. And I remember speaking to, to the groom, and, uh, and he asked me, he asked me, what does it mean to lead your wife? <laughs> Thank you for the laughter. Uh, and I said, huh. I, and I'm sure I spit out something, and I don't, it was wrong. Um, and so, and so, so then I went home and I asked my wife, what, what does it mean for me to lead you? And she, she, she very kindly and very sweetly responded, don't worry, I'll tell you when it's time. <laughs> Um, Christian leadership is a hard thing. It's amazing. You know, you go to a Christian bookstore and you just see an onslaught of all these various books on how to lead and how to lead well. Um, as, a, as a new believer, when I was in college, I picked up one of those books, and I don't remember what the title was. It was something along the lines of like 53 principles to being a better leader or something or other. I, I don't know. I made it about 12, 12 principles in and decided I didn't want to lead anything. Um, <laughs> But I, and, and I say that in jest because there was lots of good wisdom and lots of good things in that book, and there's lots of good things that we can learn. And, I mean, if you, look at, if you look at the broad swath of Scripture and if you look at Proverbs and if you look at all these passages, really there are so many things that go into being a good leader. But it, it is interesting how, how stark the contrast, the biblical depiction of leadership is from the world's depiction of leadership. Right? We, we, we live in a world of leadership vacuum. Those, those who step into positions of leadership, unfortunately, both e even, even within evangelicalism, but certainly at the world at large, um, we often see leadership that runs contrary to what we see described by Christ. 
by Christ the ultimate standard for what leadership should look like. As we, as we dive into our passage today, John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25, we'll see there as Christ actually gives us a depiction of what genuine biblical leadership looks like. In our passage, we'll see the key convictions of a Christ-exalting leader. The key convictions of a Christ-exalting leader. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Again, that's John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25, and we'll read the passage together. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if it is my will, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this time as we, as we approach you, Father, as we come to you through your word. Lord, I pray that you would just speak clearly to us, Father, that as we, as we hear the, your words proclaim, Father, that your spirit would be applying those things to our heart. God, that you would be changing us, that you would be shaping us, that you would be transforming us. Lord, that our, our, our minds and our hearts would be that much more receptive to the goodness and to the beauty of your Son. And Lord, that we would respond appropriately with worship. Father, please just work mightily. God, please just use this time for your glory and for your honor. We pray this through, through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So last week, we entered into the final chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 21. We've already been privy to the truths about God's great love for the world on display through his Son, Jesus Christ, who, who lived, who died, and who rose again. 
And after he rose again, we've been able to see as, as he's been able, as he's, um, as he's interacted with his disciples over this kind of post-resurrection period of his life. There'd be 40 days before he would eventually ascend to be back with the Father. Most recently, as we saw last week, he's appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. In our passage, it goes by the Roman name, the Sea of Tiberias but the Sea of Galilee, and there we got to witness Jesus enjoying a final meal with his disciples, a final fish meal around a charcoal grill by the sea. And so our passage this morning then picks up at this, uh, at this point, in, our, at this point in, uh, in the Gospel of John. Jesus here, Jesus turns and he addresses Peter. He addresses Peter. He begins by addressing him formally, Peter, son of, son of John. Now, this would be a very formal way to address Peter. This adds a note of solemnity to the occasion, meaning, meaning Jesus is trying to highlight what I'm about to say to you is crucial. What I'm about to say to you is of the utmost importance. So listen, listen to me, Peter. And then he continues on with a startling question. He asks, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? The, the question kind of has a startling transparency to it, doesn't it? Uh, I have a hard time even imagining asking that question to someone I care about and someone that I love about, let alone hearing it. Could you imagine hearing that from your spouse or from your child? Do you love me? Right? It's just, there's a transparency about the question. And, and not, not only is it a startling question, But then Jesus goes on to ask it two more times. He asks him three times, do you love me? Why would Jesus feel the need to repeat this question three times? You know, I often repeat questions two to three times, but it's because I'm I'm very distracted, and then I forget what people say, and then, then, you know. I, I don't think that that's the reason why Jesus is asking this three times. I think he has a greater point. Now, it isn't clear from our English translations, but in the Greek, um, John actually uses two different words for love in this passage. He uses two different words for love when he repeats the question. It's been popular in recent history and recent interpretations to note that the distinction, there's a distinction between these two words, and, and he's doing it to highlight the one, agape, which is often seen as a better or higher form of love, Versus the other one, phileo, which is sometimes deemed to be a lower form of love, a lesser love. So the distinction then is made that Peter can't quite muster himself to confess this higher agape sort of love. And so he has to settle rather with a phileo sort of love. He can't bring himself to make a full profession of agape. I love you more than anything else. I'm willing to do anything for you. He's not quite willing to go there. So he only responds with, yeah, I, I phileo love you. I, I, I kind of love you. I love you, but it's just not quite as high. Now, honestly, I, I don't think that's the best interpretation of this passage. I don't think it's best for a number of reasons, but one of the, one of the most significant reasons is that that distinction between agape and phileo, between this higher love and lesser love, that was true of classical Greek. Classical Greek was hundreds of years prior to biblical Greek. Biblical Greek is a very different type of Greek than classical Greek. That would be, that would be like us today trying to, uh, trying to understand how words are used in a modern context based, based on ancient English, 
right? There's been a lot of time. Lots of things have changed. For example, did you know that the word silly actually originally meant blessed? It actually, silly actually meant blessed or very, very kind of righteous, right? Now, can you imagine using silly in a context like that today? Can you imagine using it that way? I mean, if I was to, if I was to talk to Pastor Jason after his sermon last week, I, I wouldn't come up to him and say, Pastor Jason, that was a silly sermon, right? I think he would be offended, or at least I wouldn't say it to his face, right? <laughs> so, so, so words change in their meaning over time. So for us to bring that same sort of love from classical Greek and import it into the biblical Greek is probably not the best reading for the passage. Well then, if that's the case, then what actually is happening here? What kind of, why is Jesus asking this three times? And why is he actually changing his language as he does ask this? Well, in terms of changing his language, it's, it's actually very standard in the Gospel of John for Jesus to use various words at different times. It's just probably, honestly, probably more due to literary purposes and just stylistic variation. Basically, it's just good Greek. Just like if you're writing a paper, you don't want to keep using the same word over and over and over again. It's also good English to use a variety of words. And we see that repeatedly throughout John. In fact, even in this passage alone, Jesus uses multiple words for sheep and multiple words for no. So again, this is not uncommon. We see it happening all over the place. Which, that explains the variation but what about the three times? Why does Jesus ask him three times? Again, is this just some forgetfulness on his part? He can't remember how Peter keeps answering? Why does he ask him three times, do you love me? I think it's likely that this is probably alluding back to Peter's threefold denial of Jesus that we saw previously in the gospel. His threefold denial that we have seen previously in the gospel. Peter had boasted that he would go to the grave with Jesus way back earlier in the gospel. He had said, Jesus, no matter what happens to you, I'm going with you, even if it means I die. And Jesus responded in that context, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus prophesied about Peter's actions that were coming soon. And Peter, just totally baffled, right? No, not a chance. I wouldn't deny you. Oh, you're going to do it three times. And then we get to chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. We get to that charcoal fire as Peter is out warming himself. And then we see the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus had given him. Indeed, John did deny, or Peter did deny him three times by a charcoal fire. And now, in the presence of a charcoal fire, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Do you really love me, Peter? Jesus wants to be Peter's highest priority. Peter has already proven that in the past, in the past, Jesus was not his highest priority. He prioritized other things when he denied Jesus. Peter denied him when it seemed the most crucial. And now Jesus is redirecting his gaze Peter, I know that you failed me. Remember, this is, this is the first significant interaction they've had since that time, since that denial. This is the first significant interaction that they're having. 
Peter's, or Jesus' response, Peter, I know that you failed me, but we're not done yet. The story isn't over. Do you love me? Will you put me before everything else? Will you make me first? That's basically what Jesus is asking Peter here. Will I be the greatest priority in your life? It's always easy to claim great things, but it's difficult to know how we'll actually respond in the day of testing, right? We all know the expression, talk is cheap. And, well, Peter has been a talker, right? Jesus lets the full weight and significance of this love fall on Peter's shoulders. Everything else that Peter does will flow ultimately from this love and this devotion to Christ first and foremost. So the Christ-exalting leader then, the Christ-exalting leader of God is committed first and foremost to loving Christ and putting him before everything else. First and foremost, love of Christ. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter consistently responds, yes, even to the point of exasperation. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus goes on to give the consequence. All right, all right, so if you really love me, Peter, if that's true, if, if you really love me with everything, if you're really making me first in everything, if I am truly central to your heart and to your mind and to your soul and to your strength, then I have something for you. This, this is Peter's commission. These are the words that would ring in Peter's ears until the day of his death under the, the, under the Neronian persecution in 30 some odd years from this point. These would continue to percolate on his mind. These would inform his ministry. This would inform his actions. This would inform his coming and his going. This would inform everything for Peter. This moment right here, they would shape the rest of his life and his ministry. Just like Peter repeated, just like Jesus repeated his question three times, he'll repeat his commission to Peter three times as well. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, Peter. Christ is commissioning Peter to a role of a shepherd. Now, it's also interesting to note here, who's the head shepherd in this passage. Who's the true shepherd? It's not Peter. Whose sheep are they? They're Jesus' sheep. They're my sheep. Jesus is the head shepherd here. Jesus is only commissioning Peter to an under-shepherd sort of role. These actually are Jesus' sheep, which we've already seen in the gospel. Way back in John chapter 10, who is the good shepherd? Well, repeatedly, Jesus affirmed, I am the good shepherd. I am the one who takes care of the sheep. The sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And even well before that, even well before that, David proclaimed in the Psalms, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Peter, Peter is only commissioned to a shepherd-like role here. But it's really, it's really the role of an under-shepherd. And that's important because they're not his sheep. They're not his sheep. He is not the one that's leading this. Jesus, Jesus is the one who is leading this. P 
Peter is only invited to be a participant in the task that the Father is accomplishing through the Son by the power of the Spirit at work in his people. Peter is invited to step in and to participate. And that's a joy-filled invitation to be able to be involved in something that, frankly, God doesn't need you for. But he's inviting him to partake anyways. The words feeding and tending here are nearly synonymous in Greek. Tending, might, tending can be used just a little bit more broadly, um, though it can be used for feeding as well. Just as Jesus had literally nourished his disciples only in the previous paragraph around a, around a fish breakfast, now Peter is invited to nourish the sheep, nourish God's people spiritually with an essential spiritual role. Jesus here doesn't expound on exactly what that means to feed them or what exactly he's nourishing them on, but I don't think there's any question for Peter because Jesus has been so faithful to teach the disciple over their years together, this is what it means to feed my sheep. There's no question about it. The sheep need to be led by the voice of the good shepherd. They need to hear Jesus speaking. They need God's word to nourish them. And not only that, but the shepherd protects his sheep. The shepherd protects his sheep. He steps in and he functions, uh, he functions as a good shepherd in taking care of the sheep in case someone comes against them, in case there's danger, in case anything might happen. Right? So, so the role of this under-shepherd then is to communicate God's word and to protect the sheep. Now, again, as I've already said, this would go on to have a profound effect on Peter's ministry in life. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the word of God. And what do we see? We see 3,000 people respond to it after Pentecost through preaching and through teaching. And what's the response of the church after that in the wake of these 3,000 people coming to know Jesus? The response of the church is, we want to hear more Bible they devoted themselves to the, teach, to the apostles' teaching and to the word. Acts chapter 6, when the apostles are overwhelmed by the physical, tangible needs of the growing church body, the apostles appointed deacons to step in for them to help so that, so that the apostles, so that Peter and the other apostles could be more focused on feeding the sheep and the ministry of the word and prayer. Over and over again, we see Peter committed to preaching and teaching God's word. Acts chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. This is in the midst of one of Peter's sermons. During, uh, beginning in verse 40, God raised him on the third day and made him appear to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he commanded us to preach. Not only do we see Peter's profound commitment to a word-based ministry, in his history and in his sermons, but also in his letters. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for it. This is God's word. Peter's priorities as an under-shepherd are to nourish the sheep through preaching and teaching God's word so that God's people might be saved and grow in Christ-likeness. Now, some, some interpreters look at this passage and they look at Peter's commission here and they see it as validation 
for the papacy or for a pope-like figure. Such interpreters see this as a unique commission given to Peter to shepherd and to rule the flock, the church, which then is passed down by way of succession to future generations and to future singular figures. Now, it's worth noting here the well, I, I think such interpretations are quite strained for a number of reasons. I'm going to highlight two of them. But first, there's an emphasis on succession that happens with the, uh, with the Roman Catholic reading of this passage, that this position is passed down from generation to generation, from pope to pope. Um, but again, we don't see any hint of that in this passage. There's no hint of any kind of succession plan. And not only that, but it also assumes that Peter here is being given a, a unique kind of preeminent position over the church. But I don't think that's exactly what's happening here either. Peter isn't being given a unique preeminent position. There's only one figure here who has a preeminent position. There's only one figure here who is preeminent over all things. And that is clearly Christ. Christ declares, they are my sheep. Peter's not the preeminent one. Peter's just a servant. And not only that, Peter's only being restored in our passage. He's not being given a unique role over the other disciples, over the other apostles. He is merely being restored to his position in the presence of the other apostles. He's being given a position that reflects the call and the function that all of the apostles have been invited to one that is reflected throughout the rest of the New Testament, not even just for the apostles, but then, but then is also given to pastors and to elders and to missionaries and to those who proclaim God's word. This isn't just for Peter. This is only a restoration for Peter. God's leaders are to be a people who are committed to feeding the sheep on God's word because it's so vital and because it's so life-giving. It's the very words of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, they're living and active, right? They're living and active. 2 Timothy 3, 16, they're, they're his breathed out words, which is why Paul can go on and say right after 2 Timothy 3, 16, therefore, preach my word. Preach the word. This should be central to everything because this is my word. So as we come to scripture, we are not coming to a book. This isn't a book. This is God's word to us. As we, as, as we are in this, as we listen to it, as we pray, as we interact with it, as we meditate on it, as we memorize it, we're not memorizing a book. We're communing with God. This is about meeting with our God. That's why it's so central. And that's why it's so fundamental to Peter's commission that he needs to be about preaching the word. That's why the other apostles are commanded, preach the word. That's why Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. That's why Paul says to the, to the elders in Ephesus and Acts, preach the word. Because it's so essential to communing with God. This is primarily about God. We need to be in God's word. We, we are feeders by nature. We are constantly feeding on the things that are going on around us. We are constantly absorbing them. We are constantly taking them in. We like to feed, and those things change us. Those things shape us. So we need to be those who are committing ourselves, because you are 
You are interacting with the world. You are taking in the things of this world. So we need to be focused on taking in more of this than we are by being shaped by the world. We need to be those who are committed to feeding on what is healthy and what is good and will shape us. Right? The literal, the literal analogies are here are obvious. If you eat junk food, what happens? Right? If you eat healthy food, though, it changes you. It changes you. It shapes you. It prepares you. It makes you stronger. It makes you sharper. It makes you faster. It makes you smarter. Right? God's word changes you as you, nour- as you are nourished on it. So a Christ-exalting leader of God is one who is committed to feeding the sheep on God's word. Jesus finishes his commission to Peter to be his under-shepherd, and he provides a brief preview of the rest of Peter's life. Peter confessed in chapter 13 that he would lay down his life, right? He would lay down his life for Jesus. And indeed, and indeed, he will lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus prepares him in verse 18. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus isn't simply describing here the normal course of aging, the normal course of the elderly. That's not, that's not what he's looking at here. The language there of stretching out your hands was a common ancient expression for death upon the cross. Stretching out your hands meant Peter, you were going to die by way of crucifixion. Peter didn't miss that interpretation. And in fact, verse 19, John, John comments on it just in case we miss it, that this is referring to the sort of death by which Peter was going to die. It reveals both the manner and it, and it reveals the purpose of Peter's death. The manner being death upon the cross and the purpose of it ultimately for God's glory. Peter would live a life of nourishing the sheep and die an excruciating death in the exact same way that his Lord had, in the same way that Christ had. He was following along in the footsteps of Jesus who went before him. Jesus, without missing a mark, without missing a mark, he tells him this horrible, gruesome thing, and without without missing a beat, Jesus declares, follow me, follow me. Now, Jesus would be a horrible salesman, right? right? This is going to be like the worst thing you can imagine. You're going to die an excruciating death. And, um, I mean, you're just going to generally live a hard life. Um, and he says, follow me. And Peter's like, ah, sign me up for that. That sounds great. Um, and, and not only that, but Peter, Peter, this is a man who had already rejected Jesus. He had already just, just recently rejected Jesus to save himself now is faced with the reality of where his course, where following Christ will ultimately lead him. Peter, distracted, he he glances back to see John, the disciple um, consistently referred to in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was following behind him. And it's hard to know exactly what Peter's motivation is here, whether he's, he's actually concerned for John's welfare, welfare or if this is really more a case of jealousy due to the sour news that he had just received. And he asked Jesus, what about him? What about, what about that guy? What about John? What's going to happen to him? 
Jesus' response here is short and it's terse. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? What is that to you? Follow me. Follow me. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when, when you call your kids out for something or one of your kids and they're like, but, but, but what about so-and-so? Like, like, what about my sibling? Like, look what he did. Come on, are you serious? You're calling me out for this? Have, have you seen him, really? Like, it, it kind of reminds me of one of those moments. Jesus' emphasis here is that he is sovereign. What he wills will happen. What he desires will take place. He can preserve John's life indefinitely. That's not beyond him. That's not hard for him. That doesn't take any amount of effort on Jesus' part to preserve John's life. But what Jesus decides to do with John is of no consequence to Peter and to Peter's actions. Jesus recalibrates Peter's actions by reminding him, you follow me. You trust my will. You do what I say. You go where I lead you. And you know that I will take you, maybe in hard places, but therefore my Father's glory. And that's the most important. Regardless of what happens, that is the most significant thing. This is for God's glory. Jesus wants Peter to be committed in following him, even in the midst of what could be called a frowning providence. I get that expression, frowning providence. I like that. I get that expression from a, from a hymn that was written in the 1700s by a, by a, by a hymn writer by the name of um, William Cooper. Um, if you ever see it in print, print it'll look like William Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's, it's actually pronounced Cooper. William Cooper, um, and he wrote about it in, in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I just want to read some of the lyrics from it because it's amazing. It's just, I, I love it. Deep in unfathomable, in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. He works his sovereign will in all situations at all times. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that, that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. So... The saints are fearful because of the dark clouds that are evidently coming, that are obviously coming. It's easy to be overwhelmed by those. But with big mercy, big mercy and blessings will break upon our head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Though times are hard, though times may not go the way that we want, we know that he is sovereign meaning he is providentially in control of all things. And even though it might not go the way we like, and it might appear to be a frowning providence, behind that frowning providence is a smiling face because he loves us and because he has promised us good, though that good doesn't always look the way that we want it to. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower, right? That's the Christian life, trusting in a God who is sovereign over all things, who is providentially working all things for his purposes and for his ends and for his glory. And even in the midst of what appears to be a frowning providence, we can take joy 
knowing there is a smile. There is a smile. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So the leader of God is committed to following Christ even in the midst of a frowning providence. Now, this is a commission that begins with Christ. It ends with Christ. And in the middle, it's more Christ. Everything centers upon Christ and upon who he is and what he has accomplished. Peter must love Christ first and foremost. That's the foundation to it all. Nothing else is possible apart from that basic fundamental reality of loving him above all else. And out of that love for Christ, Peter can serve through the feeding of Jesus' sheep. But the two cannot be split apart. No, no love, no service. And then the commission terminates in following Christ by trusting him in his sovereign guiding hand in the midst of a frowning providence, wherever it may lead. But again, the only way you can do that is if you love Christ with all of your heart. Why would you follow him through a frowning providence unless you recognize that he is greater than anything else? He is greater than anything this world has to offer. He is greater than anything that you can get. And the thing that he offers you, the thing that he offers you is the greatest thing imaginable. It's himself. It's the greatest thing that we could ever possibly hope for. It's himself. So the only way that you would follow him through all of that is if you deem him that significant if you understand him to be that truly beautiful, if he is that delightful to you, that is the only way that you would walk through this. Christ restores Peter then with this commission, this great Peter commission, a call to the core convictions of Christ's exalting leadership. It's a commission that's modeled on Christ himself, but it's not a unique call. It's not a unique commission. It matches the same imperatives that Christ gave to the other apostles, and it matches what Paul gave to his, those he discipled, and it matched what, what, he, what he gave to those elders and to those pastors and the various churches that he went to. It's one, in fact, that's true for all of us in all of the various ministries that God has given to us. We are called first to love we are called to put Christ first. It's amazing because, because it's so central, and yet we're so quick to neglect the fundamental. It's so easy to leave behind our first love, as we see of the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. So that leading and serving and following God comes out of our own strength and our own talents and our own personality and our own charisma. And we look to ourselves and we look to our strengths, but those aren't the things that Jesus wants most from us. He doesn't need your strengths he doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need you to be charismatic. He doesn't need those things from you. He doesn't. What he needs nothing from us. But what he delights in, what he wants from us, is those who are broken and in love with him. That's what he wants from us. It reminds me of uh, in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, Israel rises up and declares, because they didn't have a king at that point in time, so they declare, we want to be like our neighbors. We look at our neighbors and things are going better for them, which is crazy. Um, things are going better for them, and, and we want a king like everyone else. And so, and so all right, so, so, so we get a king. We, we get King Saul, which if those of, those of you familiar with your Old Testament history know that that didn't actually work out very well. But the people saw him, and they 
they saw, he's taller, he's stronger, he's a big guy. He just looks like a king, right? He just looks like a king. He would be great as a king. He's got all of the physical attributes and everything else. He'll be amazing. And God rejects him. And instead, God embraces David. Why? Because he wants a king after his own heart. He doesn't want someone with all, the, with all his talents and all the attributes and all the charisma. He wants someone who's after his own heart. Second, we are called to serve. We are called to serve and to shepherd through nourishing Jesus' sheep with his word. This commission is for pastors and elders, certainly. That's why Pastor Jason and the elders and the other pastors of Legs Free put such a premium on preaching God's word. That's, that's why we're up here right now. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're preaching God's word, because it's so important and it's so central. And that's why we have classes, and that's why we do all the things in small groups and ABFs and all that. Because we believe in the centrality of God's word for meeting with God. Regardless of anything else that comes up, we will continue to preach and teach God's word. But this isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for pastors. This is for all believers. This is for all believers, moms, dads. Are you teaching your children God's word? Grandparents, to the best of your ability, to, to, to what you're able to do, are you teaching your grandchildren God's word? Husbands, Husbands, are, are, you, are you leading your wives in God's word? Are you taking them back to the goodness and the beauty of Christ there? Maybe some of you are sitting here thinking, God hasn't given those, those things in my life. I, I don't have any of those areas. Well, have you been here on Wednesday evenings? Have you been here on Wednesday evenings? The church is bursting at the seams with activity on Wednesday evenings between our children's programming and our youth programming. And the reason is, is because there are people who need to hear God's word, right? The, the, the fields are ripe for the harvest, but the laborers are few. If, if you are lacking places to minister God's word, I certainly invite you to join us on Wednesday evenings. Are you, are you prepared to feed Jesus' sheep? Number three, we follow. We are called to follow Christ, even in the midst of a frowning providence. The call to Peter is no different than any of us. Jesus has a commission for all of us. We're, we all have a calling on our lives. And in God's plan, that can include hardships and joys. It can look very different from other believers, but our call is not to worry about someone else's call and commission. Rather, we're to focus on what he has called us to. When we don't see the fruit we want, we follow Christ. When we're frustrated, we follow Christ. When we're lonely, we follow Christ. When we're sick, we follow Christ. Wherever he may lead, we follow Christ. The sermon title, the sermon title is Peter's Great Commission, but I, I, it's not really the best sermon title. I just, I needed something. We got to put in the bulletin. And, and so, you know, you come up with things. Um, I mean, re really, this is a great commission for all of us. Really, this is a great commission for all of us. John wasn't really interested in only describing here the experiences of Peter. He provided a commission for us all. He provided the core convictions of Christ's exalting leadership that were fundamental to the church 2,000 years ago and are still just as fundamental for us today. And with that, John ends his gospel. 
A gospel that began with Christ coming and now ends with us going out into the world to declare the very message that has been so central, been so central to the gospel of John, to the account itself. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word took flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the leadership that you spell out in these pages. Father, the commission that you have given to each of us. Father, to make your son central in our hearts, to love him with everything that we have, to, to, to focus on nourishing, on nourishing others through your word, Lord, and to following you wherever you may lead. God, I pray that these truths would grip our hearts, Father, and that we would be wholly devoted, wholly devoted to you. Father, you are glorious and you are almighty. And we thank you so much for this time. We thank you so much for meeting us in your word. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes out of the book of Jude. Verses 24 to 25. Please rise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a good day. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's... Hi everybody, Pastor... Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.